1: This is all about 45 years ago. I I could be off by a year, but I'm pretty sure it's February of 1973, and I'm 10 years old. It's a Saturday morning. I'm hanging out with my best friend, Bobby. Now, Bobby's dad had a job that was sort of new. It was certainly something I hadn't heard of before. He's a computer operator. He ran the computer for a medium-sized business. And once a month... On a Saturday, when no one was using that computer to run the business, he would go into the office, he'd back up all of the files, he'd do whatever maintenance was required on the computer. Now, we need to be clear, this was not a little desktop machine. Those didn't exist yet. Computers like that were the better part of a decade away. This computer, this computer filled an entire room, and and not a small room. It had a special raised floor so that the parts of the computer, which were spread all over the room, their cables would run underneath the floor into the power supply. This room had a special fire suppression system installed. It was in its own walled-off part of the building. And I knew all of this because one Saturday in February 1973, Bobby invited me to come along and to hang out with him while his father worked which I did, and I did it with no particular expectation. I was just going to go hang out with a friend. We got there, and we got sat in front of these large typewriters. Well, they looked like typewriters. They were actually terminals that were connected to the computer. Now, I had never used a computer before. I mean, in 1973, most people had never used a computer before. I had no idea what you could do with a computer. So when we sat down, I looked at Bobby, and I said, so now what? And he leaned over to my typewriter and he typed in one word, Star Trek. And then he hit the return key. And that, that's when everything changed. And I don't know how many hours went by, but I was lost inside my first computer game, commanding the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, fighting Klingons, mostly losing. But boy, was it fun. And that first contact with the computer, it never left me. From that moment on, I knew I wanted to be close to this incredible machine. And it turns out, I was far from alone. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this third series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this first episode of our three-part history, we'll take a look back into the 1970s and at the birth of what we now call personal computing to understand what happened to make the computer personal. That's on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Computers are so present in our lives that it's easy to forget they were once very rare and special and not at all personal. Now, in 1968, when the world began, we looked at how art, interactivity, and augmentation came together to create computing as we know it today. And all of that made computing useful, but none of it really made computing personal. That was a different revolution and a far more friendly one. Dr. Lane Nooney is an assistant professor at New York University where she studies our culture of computing, which in many ways has just become our culture. How that happened... How this distant machine became the center of our lives is an important story, not just of the last billion seconds, but for the next. Lane, welcome to the next billion seconds.
0: Welcome. Thank you.
1: So talk to us about that transition point. How did the computer become
0: personal? I mean, this is a question that has so many different answers, right? What does it mean to be close to a computer? What does it mean to be intimate with a computer? Um, What does it mean to bring a computer into your home?
1: And why would you do it?
0: I mean, that was a question that a lot of people had during that period. So one starting point is 1977. Right, what's considered the second wave of the microcomputer? Right, so we have the Altair, right, that comes out in 1975. And these are
1: ones that you basically had to assemble yourself. Yeah, your kits. It, it,
0: it, the Altair is basically it's a it's a bunch of it's a bunch of computing equipment in a blue metal box with a bunch of switches on the front. You really can't interact with it. You can't make it do a lot. Um, And basically, unless you are interested in working at the level of hardware, you can't do anything with it, right? There's no real interactivity that you can have with this machine unless you are willing to learn how to program at like the bit level.
1: Right, which again, Bill Gates and Paul Allen were completely willing to do and actually wrote their very first basic program for that machine, which then became the core of Microsoft.
0: Yes. Yes. So
1: for a few people that worked out brilliantly but for most everyone else not so much.
0: Yeah, so the people who were into this kind of machine were the uh, the you know the, the legendary hackers, the hobbyists, the homebrewers, right? Almost universally guys yeah. uh, with a lot of kind of technical know-how usually, so some of them were kind of inspired by the technoculture of kind of the late 60s and early 70s. A lot of them were just like ham radio enthusiasts Mm -hmm. who had found the latest toy. Mm -hmm. And so so computing really kind of stayed in that pocket um, until... One of the big first transitions is 1977, and you start getting uh, the release of three major microcomputers, which were kind of assembled with the idea of being more Mm appliance-like. So this is the TRS-80, which Mm -hmm. was released by Radio Shack. This is the Commodore PET, Mm -hmm. and probably most famously, the Apple II. Yeah, Steve Wozniak's uh, kind of brilliant machine, right? Um, Which was the most expensive of those three computers, but I would say far and away was the one that uh, produced the most kind of creative expansions of software that people were kind of most inspired by in terms of what they could do on it. And these machines were, you know, they came with... Monitors—that was huge. I think we forget that in the late 70s, the monitor was a peripheral. They came with keyboards, right? That's not something the Altair had. So there was a form of natural language input that these machines had that was f- like typing on a typewriter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and <clears throat> and they came kind of encased, right? These weren't live guts machines. You could open up an Apple II, right, to get into it, but if you never wanted to know what was going on inside, you didn't have to. And you
1: could open up, but. A- TRS-80 to add more RAM to it.
0: No, the TRS-80 was a closed box, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that it was screwed shut. That was why it was considered...
1: Oh, yeah, no, 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 it was screwed shut. Yeah, no, whereas with the Apple, you could actually just open up the the, top part. The
0: Apple wasn't even... So the Apple just basically had these kind of plastic Velcro tabs that you could just lift off. Okay. uh, Eight expansion slots. the, 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 The argument I've made about this machine, the Apple II in particular, is that it cornered this sweet spot between appealing to hobbyists who wanted a lot of access to the internal guts of the machine, Mm -hmm. right? They wanted to be able to trick it out. They wanted to be able to add all sorts of different cards. They wanted to be able to change screen width and peripherals and people who actually didn't want to do any of that at Mm -hmm. all. And that's what, so you have the release of these machines that are more accessible. They have ways that are that we kind of understand that we receive data like a monitor and that we would input data like a keyboard. Um, But what really makes, for the most part, those machines, you still had to be able to do some kind of literally basic level programming in order to use them at all. Right around the time when that happens is starts to change, is 1979, um, you get the development of what we would call the shrink-wrapped software industry, right? And I think that is really the critical turn, even more so than the hardware itself.
1: So being able to go into a shop that was selling computers and actually be able to buy software.
0: Yes, that was which huge. Which is something
1: we don't even think about now yeah. that it's just, in fact, we don't even do that anymore. We don't even buy it. <laughs> because it's coming off the cloud somewhere, but there's this idea that there is software that you can yes. buy or that is pre-installed. And in this situation back in this period from 77 to 79, there's no software on this nice little machine unless you wrote it.
0: Nope, that is correct. I mean, plenty of those machines you couldn't even store, I mean, you couldn't store data on them, right? Uh, There was no hard hard drive, right? Yeah, you had to put it on a cassette tape until I think the Apple II released its five and a quarter floppy disk drive in 1979. Mm -hmm. That's when that came out, right? Until that point, yeah, you were stuck uh, basically with a cassette tape, right? which is not, not reliable, not ideal data storage. No, not um, reliable. So the, you know, there's been a a lot of historians will point to the release of VisiCalc, which was the first you know, this kind of a spreadsheet software marketed for microcomputers, but. There was so much stuff that kind of hit right at that time, right? There were companies producing database software, uh, word processors, software utilities, games. Of course, right? Games in particular were this; they were the only they were their software that could, I think, really express the limitations of what a computer could do. That was why I think games were so appealing during that time.
1: So we also now have because for the a couple of years before the personal computer, we also now had video game systems. So we had the the Magnavox, was it the Odyssey? The Odyssey. And we had the Atari 2600 famously. And these are both also computers, but they aren't sold or packaged as personal computers. They're sold and packaged as game machines, right? Yes. And so how does that then, does is that then what we see is that, in fact, that the computer had to sort of steal some of that thunder from the game systems?
0: That's an interesting way of putting it. Well, so the Magnavox Odyssey originally, there was there was no digital logic. It was all transistor to transistor. Um, so there weren't kind of computer parts in the way that we think of it in that machine. And the thing about game consoles... Especially something like the twenty six hundred, the Mag- the Magnavox Odyssey, the Intellivision, the ColecoVision, right? All of these all of these sort of nineteen seventies consoles is they were really peripherals to a television, right? Okay. Which makes them distinct from what a a computer was a multi purpose tool. Right. Right. And that was what was interesting about it. These are these video game consoles, all they could do was play a game that was either pre-programmed mm-hmm. onto the hardware itself or that came in a cartridge. That was the real innovation of the Atari 2600. Um, you know, there was already... Uh, those relationships blurred quite a lot, actually, in the beginning in the late 70s and the early 80s with things like the release of the Atari uh, 400, 800, the 8-bit series. So uh, these
1: are video game systems that are also computers or computers that are also video game systems, depending d- on what you Depending
0: on who they were advertising to, mm, yes. Okay. Um, and so there was a whole wash of kind of low-end hardware computers that came out that were basically, for a lot of people for a lot of potential consumers, they were treated as high-end toys, because they were kind of designed only to play games. Um, In a lot of regards, the Commodore 64 kind of had that reputation as well, right? Um, And, but to sort of get back to this point about software, right? So what you suddenly have is a whole bunch of possible uses for this machine, and everyone's trying to figure out, what the hell do we do with this thing, right? You have, especially if you're talking about the Apple II, you have a $2,000 $2,000 piece of hardware? What in the world do you do with it? And and so what you see a lot of these early companies doing, one, there wasn't, you know, if you, if you put aside like Microsoft or something like that, a lot of these early companies didn't have a sense of specialization. They would make anything they thought would sell. So even during this period, at least in the microcomputer space, there was no such thing as like a game company, quote unquote. There were companies that made many types of software, P- possibly a lot of them were games, but uh, many of those companies were also releasing business software, word processors, uh, educational software. The idea of industry consolidation was still kind of a few years mm. off. For well, because a lot the of
1: them. Indie- industry's just started, there's yeah. nothing to consolidate. And yet.
0: everyone's trying to figure out what the hell do we do with this thing. And I think this moment between kind of '79 and and probably '84, mm. um, I would kind of cap it off with the release of the Macintosh, yeah. is when you see the the birth of a user right? There's the idea that there's someone interested in owning a computer who does not want to have to know how to program on it. Right. And, and that is, that's a really big change. And even during that period, it was, it was really not terribly possible. You still had to usually uh, have some sort of uh, command line based interactions with these machines. But if you read letters to the editor in con- enthusiast magazines from the period, it's a lot of people writing and saying like, I'm tired of this. I'm a small business owner. I don't have time to learn learn how to program right there, it's P, it's it's this new class of so there's it,
1: a frustration because totally, they can tell totally. that this machine has a lot of power, but they don't yes. have access. Yeah, to Yeah, a good of way it. of
0: putting it, it was that computers were worth the trouble, right? But oh, they were that's d- great. Yes. definitely trouble, and and I think that this gets lost in the way that we tell the history of computing. Right? We treat it like it's this inevitable, exciting thing that everyone wanted to be a part of, and in fact, people were confused. They were freaked out. They were anxious. They didn't understand what these what these machines were. Supposed to do, or how to bring them into their homes? I mean, that was a whole other kind of conversation. Um, was like you bring this thing into your house, and where do you put it? Right? There's a real kind of just domestic architecture problem to something so like le- a computer. okay, let's
1: loop back here sure. to something that I saw for the real at the Computer History Museum not too long ago, which is the Honeywell Kitchen Computer, and this is this is famously 1969 Neiman Marcus catalog. There's always this sort of imaginary gift that maybe or maybe not they're going to sell some of. That year it was this, a, a computer from Honeywell that was designed for the woman in the kitchen. And it was quite large, but it also had a preparation surface for food next to it. And it also included a course so that the little woman could go off and learn how to program because- The computer didn't come with any programs to help in the kitchen. And also Honeywell famously sold, or Neiman Marcus famously sold, none of these. But there's this idea, I guess, about finding the place for it. This is sort of the first time someone's putting a stake down going, well, okay, we don't know what we're going to do with it, but we're going to find a place for it in the kitchen.
0: Yeah, it's a a real... I think that, I think the idea, and, and the Honeywell kitchen computer was really, it was a piece of vaporware, right? It was a concept. It never really existed. The Honeywell- Thank f-
1: God no one bought it. Yeah. They would have had to make it real. Yeah. I
0: mean, you wonder, I mean, the Neiman first the Neiman Marcus catalog of the 1960s was uh, full of this kind of stuff. They were also selling like Galapagos turtles. And I mean, they they like- Stuff that would send you to jail today y- you if know, you tried to sell it. Was, it was really, imagine SkyMall on both like steroids and ayahuasca or something right that that was that was the ne- the business that Neiman Marcus was in with their Christmas catalog they weren't they were not actually trying to sell stuff that they thought anyone was going to buy in in these cases the honeywell 316 was an actual computer that was distributed to businesses and data centers and stuff like that that pre- it's not a It looks from images like it has a preparation surface. It's actually just a long, flat kind of front panel, I think, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's a lot of weird... People are obsessed with the idea of the kitchen computer um, because I think it seems so baroque almost, But it's also
1: this, this trope. And the trope enters, interestingly, at the mother of all demos where Doug Engelbart actually talks about, oh, my wife called and I had to put my shopping list in... And it's that sort of thing. And then you have this idea of having the computer in the kitchen for your menus, which Bill Gates riffed on about. And you even see now the new Google devices are being sold. The Google Assistant devices are being sold to give you step-by-step cooking instructions as you're making dinner. So it's one of these things that not that many people actually ever do or not do a yeah. lot of, and yet has become this consistent touchpoint about why would you have a computer in your home?
0: There's a long history of this in the development of um, kind of... Uh, technologies of convenience and mechanization right mm-hmm. of this idea that one of the one of the first places that uh, potential companies tend to look is where, where can we kind of computerize or automate certain forms of labor right This is happens with the refrigerator and the dishwasher and the kitchen interestingly is often a site where there is this idea that there's all this labor there that doesn't need to be happening and how can we get rid of it We add a computer or we add something that's mechanized right and usually all that does is wind up creating actually more different kinds of work. For women in domestic space, right? Um, There's a kind of a repeat of this concept in the early 80s. You open up you know, a lot of these uh, computer enthusiast magazines. You could certainly find ads for it during the time of like recipe organizers, um, b- you know, bar mixing guides, uh, software that was supposed to. Sometimes you'll see it framed as a way for a man to kind of convince his wife to let the computer into the house, right? Because the house is understood as this terrain of of the of, of the, the, of the right. spouse, yeah. yeah. Um, but they they you know they don't really manage to take off particularly well because. Um, it's you know it it is fairly obviously impractical right for all sorts of reasons but I love this this that moment where everyone's like, well, what, a com- what can a computer do? A computer can list stuff. Here's work in the house that involves lists, right? Um, it's the same kind of ideas around uh, software that was produced to managing Christmas lists or like holding address books. The idea was, could could the computer take in these kind of trivial domestic tasks and, and theoretically make them easier? But I think if you've ever tried... I mean, I I could only imagine what it would have been like to read a recipe off an Apple II in my kitchen, right? While trying to, like, handle flour or milk. It's better or- <laughs> enough
1: doing it on an iPad. And the yeah. iPad, you can kind yeah. of put wherever you want. And it gets want. really gross, yeah. right? Yeah.
0: But the footprint of an Apple in the kitchen, it makes no sense, right? Except, I think, to propagate a a fantasy of the idea that this thing is close to you, right? That it has a high degree of intimacy.
1: And we're back talking to Dr. Lane Nooney about how the computer became personal. All right, so we're at this point now, sort of in the early 80s and people are getting shrink wrap software and there's companies making shrink wrap software. How does this now start to become a relationship that we would consider? Because I'm also old enough to remember that in 1977, it wasn't called the personal computer. It was called a microcomputer. So a small computer rather than there was a mainframe, there was a mini computer, there was a microcomputer. Now, IBM comes out with the personal computer, the PC in 81, but even that's a business machine, right? Not really. It's a personal computer for the office. It's not really a personal computer for the home. How do we get to the rest of that, then where people think, oh, well, there's a personal computer and it's part of my house or it's in my bedroom or it's wherever?
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, something that we often don't realize is that at that early point, late 70s, early 80s, uh, the personal, com- the microcomputer market was basically two segments. There was the business segment, which was considered the personal computer segment, even before IBM adopted that terminology with the release of the IBM PC. And then there was what was called the home computer segment. And home computers were considered to be kind of cheap, low-end, or relatively low-end, kind of toy-based machines. They were for games. They were basic kinds of like. So the VIC-20
1: and the Commodore 64 yeah, or the yeah. Sinclair ZX. X81.
0: For all the people who unfortunately bought one of those. I um, had
1: one of those. <laughs> it was $99. What can you do, you right?
0: Know, well, and that was the question. What can you do with it, right? Um, the Apple II was probably the high end, right? And it was one of the only machines that really crossed that border. Right, exactly. Between, it's both
1: in the office machine and yes, a home machine.
0: Yes, yes. And that was had a lot to do with its particular popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was, was there was a software shakeout in about 1984, um, and, and a hardware shakeout as well, where there was just kind of too much congestion in the market, too many different machines competing with each other. And in particular, there was a convergence that started happening between game consoles and Mm microcomputers that made people very confused about what was going on, right? Um, In the late 70s, there had been Machines that you played video games on, and there were machines used as a microcomputer. Um, Trying to bridge those markets, a number of uh, companies, so like the Atari 8 bit series did this, but I believe the Commodore 64 had one of these. The, um, God, almost, uh, I'm trying to think, I think the Coleco Atom uh, had cartridges, right? So there were microcomputers coming out that also had cartridge slots. And what this did was. Actually, just confuse the hell out of everyone, right? Because they're like, "Is this a computer? Is it a game machine? Is it a toy? Is it a thing I have in my office?" Um, and and people were actually not into that. Uh, they they f- they were are for most consumers, right? The real bulk of people just did not even understand what they were buying, right? They were buying a machine because they they wanted to be able to run a spreadsheet program on it. They wanted to be able to manage a database. Uh, they they weren't. I think buying, buying a computer at that time did come with a kind of sense of being part of the future, mm. but many of these users were not interested in actually understanding how it worked um, or like become participating in any of that sort of futurist rhetoric, right? Or spirit or enthusiasm, right? There was a- uh,
1: They didn't know what they were doing. They, they
0: didn't know what they were doing. And they, and they, and they God, they didn't want to. Right. For most folks, it was that a black was, box,
1: and that was good it enough. Was,
0: it was. a, and that was why when you see something like the Mac come out in '84, hobbyists are kind of horrified, right? Because you. It's can't, not
1: expandable.
0: You can't get. You ever tried to take a Mac apart?
1: Yes, in fact, I did, and there's, there were no there were no parts inside that you could do anything there's
0: with. There's two screws in the back yeah. of the monitor that you need a very very special yeah. tool to open up. This is not the Apple II, right? Yeah. This is not a machine that you can just lift the lid on. Literally, um, it's it's intentionally sealed off, right? And that's a that's a process. Of industrial design that Apple goes through from between 1977 to 1984. Right, um, hobbyists are kind of horrified this by this machine. They think it's going to be the death of programming. Right, suddenly, what do you mean? There's no command line. Right, uh, and this is also a machine that like people actually kind of prefer to use. That becomes and so the the sense of the personal is one to turn the computer into a product, to turn it into an appliance, Mm -hmm. right? To turn it into something that um, you know. For some people, that for programmers and hobbyists, that sense of of personal meant a kind of direct control and intimacy with the machine. That's often what a lot of uh, early programmers of that period will kind of recollect on was the ability to just feel like you had a sense of mastery over the whole scope of the of the computer. For other kinds of users, it was about the fact that the thing kind of existed in some corner in your home. It had a certain set of tasks. Um, This is the point where, right, Uh, you know if data is extractable on a floppy disk then there's some sense of ownership of data Mm -hmm. right Um, that you might have your files is suddenly an idea that people have right so there's many different ways in which people are beginning to experiment with what it means to have this device come into their home and that happens even at the kind of I would say kind of uh, domestic design level, right? We see the invention of computer furniture during this time. Right. We see the uh, the invention of all sorts of accessories and peripherals, from dust covers to anti glare screens to locks to uh, you know uh, sideboard fans, right? All of this, all of these appendages that are about trying to manage how we live with a computer. The uh, You could buy um, big plastic soundproof domes kind of for your printer, right, to try and cancel out the noise. Right, because
1: a line printer makes a lot of noise uh, totally, when it's going back and right, forth, right. right? They're
0: really noisy. Um, and so people are also people are trying to figure out, like, not only what do I do with this thing when it's in my house, where do I put it, how do I live with it, uh, what kinds what. How, how does the family share it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the off, there were, you know, I've encountered several times kind of articles about the computer that were about kind of breaking the day into parts and showing how different members of the family would use it at different times. So the
1: kids use right? it when they come home from school dad maybe uses it at the end of the day, mom when the kids are out, yes. that sort of thing. Yes. And so integrating the idea of the computer into the domestic day.
0: And yeah, into into routines of daily life, right? So there's a kind of educational component to it for the kids. There's a domestic management component of it, you know, for, uh, you know, for the housewife who might balance the checkbook, right? And then, you know, dad's using it for, you know, he's coming home and like looking at his spreadsheets late at night after the kids are to bed. Uh, The idea that the machine is always available and always on. So
1: one of the things that I have heard from others is that, While this was part of what the story was being told, that in fact what was happening is the machine was purchased and then given to the son and then ends up in the son's bedroom. And then if there's a daughter and she wants access to it, it's like, oh, no, that's not for you. It's not a girl thing. And that this then led to the fact that we now have this enormous gender disparity in a lot of computer-related engineering because women were effectively shut out. How did that... Because it's... it made the computing personal, but it also made it a boy's toy. How did that happen?
0: It's a very, very complicated question. One of the reasons being that all evidence of this sort is anecdotal, right? right? There's there's one of the really tricky things about thinking about the history of domestic space is that it often doesn't leave a trace, yeah. right? What goes on in people's homes is kind of a black box, right? So you really have to be kind of creative and sometimes a bit speculative. Um, so I think there, you know, there totally was. I think especially with the low end home computers, the idea that this is a this is a hobbyist toy, this is a this is a technology toy, and those trends go back for boys into the post-war period, wow. right? The idea that boys are interested in radio or right. science kits or engineering, right? There's a long tradition supporting... The erector set and yes, all of that, yes. There's a long tradition supporting the idea that these objects are, are, are for boys, quote-unquote. But something I've also thought a lot about you know, part of my personal story is I learned about computing with my mom. Uh, my stepfather actually had no idea what to do with a computer, and it, did your mom
1: have a background in computing? No, she did
0: not. She had used one as a secretary. Right. Right. So, so there's a number of interesting things here. If you think about where does the computer enter into the workplace first, it's not an executive oh, tool. no, 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 no! Right? It's a secretary's it's tool. It's a secretary's tool. Workflow, right? absolutely. So, so who actually winds up you being in front of com- either uh, kind of Dumb terminals, so computer-like machines or microcomputers themselves. It tends to be a class of kind of pink-collar laborers, right? Right. Who are using um, it
1: for documents and and that sort of work. Yes,
0: data processing, word processing, um, any kind of data management facilitation, and and because there were keyboards on it, computers were considered secretarial. Uh, it was hard to get executives. Um a lot of the mythology around the introduction of the mouse as a commercial product was that it desecretarialized the computer. Was that it it allowed a man to inter, particularly an executive for whom computing would have been beneath him to interact with a computer? Yeah, because typing from, is what yes, the secretarial typing pool does. Typing is what a secretary does, right. right? And so and so if you look at I mean this this has um, this leaves all sorts of residues, right? If you if you ever watch a really old male programmer type, he does what's called hut and Peck, which is he uses his index fingers, right, to stroke the keys, because he was never taught touch typing, which is what all women were taught in school, right? Because it was always presumed. Because it's a,
1: it's a work skill yes. for a woman, yes. exactly.
0: You actually have this interesting line of secretaries, uh, teachers, right, so... Uh, middle school teachers, in particular high school teachers, like like college librarians who all get very, very interested in computing because they are kind of the front lines of information workers during this period. And they are the ones having to take the brunt of figuring out how to use these machines and integrate them in their workflows. And they're often not given, particularly for the secretarial class, they're not given a lot of control over that, right?
1: This is how it's going to be used. These yes. are the tasks you do on it.
0: Yep. Some g- guy at the top of the chain has made the decision that computers are going to come into the workplace uh, and you all have to figure out what that means and we're going to train you for that. Um, But you also have this phenomena that, you know, I did a lot of thinking about when the computer comes into domestic space, quote unquote, who winds up spending the clocking the most hours in the just proximity to the machine Mm -hmm. And frankly, it would be a housewife, right. right? If if that's the kind of structure of the home, right? right. Stay-at-home mother, working father, kids. Uh, you know, there was a there was an anecdote I was told by one of the women that I interviewed uh, who had worked as a uh, customer support personnel uh, for a video game company in the mid '90s, mm-hmm. and she told me this story that everyone kind of knew on on working in. Uh, tech support, that there was a thing called the housewife's hours, which were the hours kind of between one and three. It was after the chores were done, before the kids came home. And that was when housewives would call in to get hints for games on there or to, to work out technical troubles, right? So there is very much this kind of, I think lost layer of our awareness of women's interactions with computing because it happened in their homes. They didn't produce products. That wasn't what they were interested in, right? They might have been doing any number of things, playing games, right? Right. I mean, Absolutely. My, well,
1: casual gaming yes. has always been much more female than male, yes. right? And so, and this is the, what we're seeing, the birth of casual gaming.
0: Yes. My mother was the one playing the Super Nintendo during the middle of the day, right, when I was at school, right? And I would come home and find her on it. and,
1: <laughs> and, and, and Busted. And
0: but the difference is if you're trying to make make a history out of that mm. the problem becomes well what kind of, you need historical evidence right for many men their experiences with computers and with games are part of their identities They're how they formed social relationships with other men or boys. uh, They're forms of technical mastery that allowed them to kind of um, compete, have things to talk about, uh, kind of, it it became a primary mode of operation in the world. You don't see the same attachment with women, right? These machines were often not part of an identity politics for them, which I think is why there's much less, women are, in my experience, less attached to the agenda of being imagined as a gamer, or a, or a uh, you know, that tech is really important to them. And I think that has a lot to do with socially, the ways that women are expected to kind of divert their attention between many tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, they're also, ex- you know, there's high expectations about, um you know the w- the kinds of caretaking they have to provide in the home right that that it's not that women weren't using these machines it's that the 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 identity relationship was very different
1: so it was happening but it was happening more invisibly or less visibly I mean,
0: it wasn't leaving a remainder right and so now when people are going around kind of cataloging the history of computers it's largely the people who are super invested in computers so you get, so that is part of what produces this very male slant i would say in our imagination of the history so, of so computers. What we're saying
1: then is the history of personal computing is more female than we would normally recognize.
0: I think the history of personal computing is not just a story of men's use and men's innovation, uh, and it's and it's not just a story of this thing kind of becoming a, a, a you know out of the pocket success either. Um, I think that there were such a vast proliferation of uses for these machines, and I think that. People took them and made all different kinds of meaning with them. And I think that actually we haven't really reckoned with all the different ways that computers mattered to people. We've really just kind of honed in on this one kind of hobbyist programmer gamer mentality when in fact there's all sorts of personal relationships that people had with these machines that we've lost sight of because we've only been looking at one thing dominantly when we've gone back to think about the history of these machines.
1: May Noony, thank you for joining us on an amazing conversation in The Next Billion Seconds. If you'd like to learn more about Lane Nooney or her work, click on the link to our website, nextbillionseconds.com, in the episode description. It has everything you'll want to take a deeper dive into her work or into the early history of personal computing. Now, has our conversation got you to thinking about the first time you touched a computer? Can you remember the first time you touched a computer? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future, we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll bring you the eighth in our new series about the future of automobiles, The Next Billion Cars. We're at a threshold where the future, for drivers and passengers, it could be heaven, could be hell, the decisions we make today will shape the transportation future of tomorrow, And we'll stare down those choices next time on The Next Billion Cars. On the episode after that, we'll be back with The Next Billion Seconds and our second part of our journey into the past, present, and future of computing in a story about a technology, virtual reality, that came back to life unexpectedly after being dead for nearly 20 years. And then in the episode after that, we'll drop the penultimate episode of The Next Billion Cars. We've got great shows coming every week. you want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Dr. Lane Nooney for coming on our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, Thanking you for listening.